The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. And so it is episode 22. Uh, we are all fully recovered from auto shows for the moment, and uh, we are heading into. Uh, lovely spring. We got we got like actual like leaves on trees right now. It's great. Um, so, yeah, it's beautiful here in Michigan. Yeah, I'm sure it's it's getting to like uh, sportsman season. You're gonna go take the boat to the lake and uh, I don't know, make excuses to go fishing, which is really excuses to just just do nothing. Well, I don't fish and I don't have a boat, but we have a couple of paddle boards that we'll take out to the lake. See, but you could do nothing. And you could say, like, I don't. Well, fish, you see, what I do is I paddle out to the middle of the lake and then I lay back and I just relax for a half an hour. Yeah, I don't know what that relax. I'm not sure what that means. Um, but we are clearly at different points in our lives. So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> My kids are out of the house. <laughs> oh, mine are here. Oh, yeah, they sure are. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that, that's and, a whole and moving podcast. right along. Yeah, right. So let's talk about what we're driving. Um, I'm actually really, really interested in the Chrysler Pacifica Hybrid, which is what you've got this week. Yeah, um, I got uh, the Pacifica Hybrid uh, a couple of days ago. And uh, for those not familiar, uh, the Pacifica, which I think we talked about in one of our earlier shows back in around November uh, time frame, uh, the regular Pacifica is the latest version of Chrysler's minivan. Um, and the 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 Pacifica is, at least right now, um, is I think the the best minivan on the road, the best minivan available. Now, I'll agree with that. A, yeah. a, a few a few weeks from now, when they start shipping uh, new Honda Odysseys, we may have to reevaluate that. But for the moment, at least, the Pacifica is still the best minivan you can get. I mean, you know, it's great looking, um, arguably better looking, you know, than the new Odyssey. Um, has a really nicely executed interior, a lot of cool features. And one thing that the Pacifica offers now that no other minivan, including the Odyssey has is uh, a plug-in hybrid version. And notice that, you know, they, they don't call it a plug-in hybrid. It's only badged as the Pacifica hybrid. Um, and, you know, there were some questions. I posted some stuff on Facebook the other day 
And uh, there's questions from uh, from one one commenter about, um, you know, whether the Pacifica hybrid has an EV mode button, you know, or a hold switch like a lot of plug in hybrids do that let you save the battery power. So if you're going you know somewhere on the highway um, and you want to save the battery power for when you're back in town, uh, you know, can you do that? And the answer to that is no. Uh, you can't do that. What you know, it, it seems that what Chrysler is doing with their marketing strategy with this thing is they're they're really pushing it as trying to trying to keep it really simple. Um, you know, they're not targeting this, uh, obviously, at the, the hardcore green enthusiasts because, you know, they're probably not going to uh, want a vehicle as big as this anyway. I mean, this this is really a vehicle is designed to be the best of what minivans have always been, which is great people movers, you know, great for moving a family around seven people in comfort with lots of room for your gear and everything else. Um, and, you know, a lot of flexibility, you know, folding, dropping the seats down, having lots of cargo space when you need it. Um, easy to get in and out of through the, the sliding side doors, um, you know, just no hassle, um, you know, just, you know, just great for moving families. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason, you know, American families seem to have migrated away from minivans to sport utility vehicles and crossovers, which, you know, frankly, I think are just less useful, especially if you've got young kids. Um, but, you know, the minivan is still the best family vehicle, big family vehicle. And what this do, this one does is it extends that just makes it much more fuel efficient in every other way. It's just like driving any other Pacifica, uh, but it's just a lot more energy efficient. And so there's none of, you know, no different modes to select and no regen on demand or any of that kind of thing. Um, you just get in and drive it. Uh, and you know, when you come home at night, you plug it in, charge up the battery, unplug it when you leave in the morning and you can get about 35 miles of, of you know 35 to 40 miles of all electric range so for most people most of the time if you plug it in at night you're probably going to use almost no gas in this thing which is pretty amazing yeah uh, i mean that's that's to me that the holy grail of hybrid vehicles has been like why does nobody make a minivan or a pickup truck now the pickup truck seems like it might be a little harder to to make that that leap um but yeah, I mean, a Pacifica that that doesn't use fuel sounds like like that's just a money machine. It just pays you back. Well, absolutely. You know, and, you know, I mean, you know, minivans are, are big and they're fairly heavy, um, you know, so they're not, you know, they're, they're not the most fuel efficient vehicles around. But, you know, if you look at it, if you look at it from the perspective of what you can do with it. You know, I mean, if you're actually, you know, hauling, you know, if you've got four or five kids, as, you know, some families do and you're, you know, or you're hauling, you know, uh, doing carpool duty, you know, hauling your, your neighbor's kids, you know, to school, things like that, or, you know, to soccer practice, you know, the, the classic, you know, example, um, you know, if you look at it as like people miles per gallon, you know, it's, it actually makes a lot of sense um, with, you know, with, with the plug-in hybrid, you know, it just takes it to a whole new level. Um, and it's it's really amazing, you know, what this thing can do. Uh, I took it, you know, I have a, a, a regular test loop that I use when I'm t uh, testing um, plug-in vehicles, you know, to look at their efficiency. And it's about a 16-mile uh, sort of urban, semi-urban loop uh, around this area. And, uh, you know, 
I had, I started off with the vehicle fully charged up. I did one lap with it in drive and a second lap with it in low mode where you do get extra regenerative braking. Um, and that's, that's really about the only option you have as far as tweaking the performance of the thing. Uh, and you know, when I came back, uh, after 32 miles, it still had 20% left on the battery. So, you know, you can, you know, for most people, you could, you'll be able to do most of your daily driving without ever using any gas, as long as you plug it in at night. And that's, that's all you have to do is just plug it in, you know, and, um, you know, with the size of battery you have in a typical plug-in hybrid, in this case, it's 16 kilowatt hours. Um, you can, you know, even without a level two charger, a 240 volt charger, you can still charge it up. You can still top it up overnight. Uh, is that, um, is that a big battery for a plug-in hybrid? Uh, um, yeah, it's it's bigger than most of the plug-in hybrids. It's the same size as the Gen 1 Volt was when it launched. So the first generation Chevy Volt also had a 16 kilowatt hour battery. Uh, and, you know, this one has uh, a little bit less range than the Volt did. But, you know, it also weighs, you know, right, about, much, 50, about 1,400 pounds more. I mean, it, right. it's, it's like two it, volts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this is a, you know, this is a 5,000 pound vehicle, but it also carries seven people and a whole bunch of cargo. You know, so it has a lot more utility than a Volt does. So uh, there, there is simplicity the only reason really behind not having the ability to sort of switch the battery in there out and conserve the power and it's just basically like this is a car for you to get in and go and it saves fuel either by running the battery down first and then acting as a traditional hybrid um or, or just whatever it's like you don't you don't have to think about it you just use it yeah i think i think that's basically what it comes down to is just just trying to keep it simple um you know not not confuse the issue because you know the people that are at, you know typically going to buy a minivan are not concerned about all that stuff most of the time they just want, you know, something that's going to, you know, that's going to be practical and suit their purposes, you know, meet their, meet their functional needs. And this, this vehicle does that. Yeah. I don't think we can argue with that. I mean, especially if there's not, not a whole bunch of buttons to learn how to press and stuff like that. And just, just fiddle with it. Just again, I hit the button and I just go. Um, and overall the rest of the vehicle is, is a, it's a Pacifica limited that you're it's, it's based on, or is it, um, yeah, the hybrid. Uh, I think it's like similar to the the touring, oh, uh, the touring trim, or maybe maybe the limited. I haven't I haven't looked at exactly what features are on there. Um, so the the uh, the the less expensive hybrid is the premium, um, which is probably similar equipment to the touring or the touring L uh, touring L plus. Um, and then there's the there's also a hybrid platinum. Uh, so the, the premium is starts at 42,000 and the platinum is 45. So it's an extra three grand, but, um, you also, uh, because it's got a 16 kilowatt hour battery, it's eligible for the, the full maximum $7,500 federal tax credit for plug-in vehicles. Um, and then, you know, if you live in California, there's also a 5,000 up to a $5,000 credit that's available there. And there's different credits in different states. So at the very least, you know, you're going to be able to get one of these for about uh, about 35, a little less than 35,000 for the for the base for the, the hybrid premium model. That's um, almost a better deal than the non-hybrid. I think it actually is a better deal than the non-hybrid. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. I mean, you know, like the, the Touring L, you know, is 35 thousand so yeah you know, 
this would be a little bit less than a touring L with the tax credit. Um, and, you know, the limited uh, is 43,000 and there's no tax credits on that. So, uh, you know, it's it's I mean, and this one is really nicely equipped. You know, it's got the, the rear seat entertainment system with the dual screens and uh, you can play games on there um, as well as watch movies. There's a DV or a Blu-ray player built in. Uh, so, you know, it's got it's got all of the the features that you would expect on on a vehicle like this and include. And there's also uh, a Wi-Fi hotspot built into the into the van. Yeah, I I think even when the Odyssey does arrive, um, the Pacific is really going to have a place uh, and, and some staying power in the market just because it's partially because it's not the Odyssey and it's not the Sienna, right? It's it's. Um, it's got its own particular flavor and it's just very well executed. Uh, you know, the Odyssey may feel a little sportier to drive, but um, I was really very impressed with the Pacifica and I, you know, it needed to be as good as it is. So I'm, I'm pleased to see that they finally introduced a, a hybrid minivan and a very good, you know, platform overall for this generation of a minivan. I'm not sold on the name change. <laughs> I'm kind of, I'm kind of sad that stow and go goes away with the hybrid, but I, well, understand. yeah, I mean that, that is, that is one thing you do lose on the hybrid. Uh, you, you, you still have stow and go for the third row seats. You know, they flip back and in, into the well in the back. Uh, but for the second row seats, uh, you have to sacrifice those storage bins, uh, for the seats, uh, to the battery pack. That's where the lithium ion battery goes is where the, the stow and go would normally be. So, if you want to um, get rid of the second row seats, you actually have to go the old school way and actually lift them out and leave them in the garage. Which is funny to understand, because if you look at the latest advertising for the Pacifica, they they make it a point to um, play up stow and go and take shots at vans that don't have that feature. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, well, what are you going to do when you start to try to sell the eh, whatever? Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the hybrid powertrain in this thing, you know, they've combined a, an Atkinson cycle version of the 3.6 liter uh, Pentastar mm -hmm. and um, they're a new um, hybrid transmission that Chrysler designed in-house. Uh, and interestingly, they they designed it to fit within the exact same packaging envelope as uh, the current nine speed transmission, the ZF design nine speed that they use on most of their front wheel drive applications right now. Uh, so that means this thing could easily fit into, oh, say a Jeep Cherokee or, you know, the, uh, compass or, you know, any, <laughs> most of the, uh, the current Jeep family, uh, certainly the higher volume ones. Well, uh, and that was, I guess one of my other questions is where did the hybrid powertrain come from? It sounds like Chrysler designed it in house. Mm -hmm. Um, and the two motor hybrid and it's, uh, it's built in their Kokomo, Indiana, uh, transmission plant because we, we haven't seen a hybrid from Chrysler for quite a long time you know they had the Aspen yeah the, well the, the only hybrid they've done before was the uh, the Dodge uh, the Chrysler Aspen and Dodge uh, uh, Durango uh, which was briefly sold in 2008 right before um, everything went to hell uh, and that was using the GM two mode hybrid system so they they had the same transmission in fact GM supplied the transmissions they manufactured the transmissions that 
that Chrysler used. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, why no one has, no, no one else has done a hybrid pickup trucks. And, you know, actually GM did do uh, hybrid pickup trucks and full size SUVs. They sold them for several years. They did. Um, did the, I didn't realize they did a pickup. I knew they did the SUVs mm-hmm. obviously, but I didn't, I didn't, they didn't sell very many of them. Because they yeah. were they were very expensive. Well, um, yeah, <laughs> and but, also not all that efficient. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, actually, you know, if, if when you compared them directly to the gas uh, versions that they had at the time, they were in fact about twenty five to thirty percent more efficient. That's quite yeah. a significant gain. Well, um, and especially you know, I mean, the the reason why they launched the hybrid system on the full size trucks was you know they they were actually being logical about it, you know, which of course you know, actual consumers rarely are, but, you know, they figured, you know, what, you know, if you're, if you're going to put a hybrid system on there, why not do it on the vehicle where you actually gain, have, have the most to gain in terms of total fuel consumption savings, as opposed to just MPG. So, you know, I mean, those trucks were rated at 22 miles per gallon, you know, city and and highway, um, which, you know, for the time, I mean, most of the comparable pickup trucks, you know, 2008, you know, they were running 14, 15, maybe 16 miles per gallon tops. Uh, and, you know, when you're talking about going from 15 miles per gallon to 20 miles per gallon, that five mile per gallon difference in terms of how many gallons of fuel you save every year is actually a lot bigger than if you go from 35 to 40. Yeah, when you go 35 to 40, you don't actually save very much fuel. Right, you save like a fraction of a gallon. Right. Or, or you know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm not good at the math. I'll just throw that yeah. out there. Uh, well, I, 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 I did a whole I did a whole article back on Autoblog Green back in the day that does all that math. And we'll we'll link that in the uh, in the post for this. Um, it's it's still that article still live. But, um, you know, it actually you actually have a lot more to gain in terms of fuel savings. When you're starting from a vehicle that's low mileage, then, you know, you know, incremental bet improvements on small cars, you don't actually have much savings. It's it's all on, on the low end is where you get the big savings. So, you, you know, somebody buying a Pacifica that would normally get maybe 20, 22 miles per gallon and going to, you know, 50, 60, 70 miles per gallon, you know, with a plug in hybrid or miles per gallon equivalent. Um, you know, that's actually some really huge savings and your payback uh, on a vehicle like this is going to be pretty significant. You know, and whatever premium you'll pay on, you know, to get the hybrid system or a plug in hybrid, you'll more than make that back, um, you know, in, in fuel savings every year. You know, as, you know, as long even even if you don't plug it in, if you just drive it as a hybrid and you never plug it in, which would be a waste, um, you'll probably still you know get your your money back within a year or two. Um, I'll, I'll stop to go through and do the math on that, but, um, you know, there, there's more, you know, hybrid pickups and, and larger vehicles coming in the next few years. Ford announced back in January that they're doing a hybrid F-150 in 2020, uh, as well as a hybrid Mustang. Um, you know, and there's, there's going to be others coming soon as well. Yeah. I, yeah, hybrids sort of cooled down a little bit as we have shifted focus to, autonomy and to a certain degree like that's sort of the the hybrid of the last couple of years because you know everybody wanted to introduce a hybrid not too long ago and um it seems like everybody got distracted recently by you know uh, all of these self-driving cars and flying cars now apparently there's 
there's a yeah. Don't a, even get me started on flying a, cars. A, a, that the did you see that thing that the the Larry Page thing, the Kitty Hawk thing? <laughs> yes. It's like they they must be hitting it so hard for PR because that is not a flying car. That is a a like glorified drone, and to me, it looks like it uses ground effect to uh, remain airborne, like the old Tupolev kind of mm-hmm. thing. And it, like it's it's not a it's certainly a thing. It does work. <laughs> But it's a gadget for really, you know, wealthy people to yes. go across their lakes at, you know, their private, like, very expensive. If they, if they don't want to raise a wake on their lake, you know, they can. Yeah, they can fly I, over it on that thing. I, I, I don't know. It just it's I don't want to spend a whole podcast on it. It's just BS. And I will say flying cars will not be a thing <laughs> ever. You're right. Not, and, not and, you know, the, the whole Uber announcement, you know, their flying car program. I mean, all that was, you know, that was just a distraction. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. bright, shiny object over here. Bright, shiny yeah. object. Ignore all the, the uh, scandals we've got going on back at the home office. Bright, shiny object. Flying hey, cars. I, managed, I, I even managed to post a thing about Uber today, which I'd been sort of cooking for a month. I was very proud of myself. I, yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> um, all right. So. So what have you been driving, Dan? Yeah, I've been. Well, I wanted to just touch on the, the RX 450 after I spent more a full week with it, because I think the last time I had just gotten into it. Um, and, you know, I, I thought and I still think that it looks more distinctive than before. Uh, the styling is more daring, but there's there's too much of it. It's it's overstyled. Um, and I, I don't. I don't really know how I feel about it beyond that. You know, it's like, it's just not that kind of car. It's, uh, it's kind of meant to fade into your lizard brain. Um, but it does everything. So you don't really have to think about it. Um, so I, uh, I think that all that anodyne perfection, um, just made it frustrating for me as a, a person who wants a little excitement or a little personality at the very least out of my cars. Um, the thing that got the the biggest reaction from me was their infotainment system, which is terrible. It's so slow. Um, you just wait for the function to come up on the screen. And I, I, I don't know what it's based on. I don't actually know how old it is. It feels old and being slow, I think is actually it's like, that's a safety thing to me now. It, it, it is an older system. Uh, it was actually developed uh, in cooperation with nuance. Uh, one of your uh, hometown companies. Yeah, uh, everybody in town has done work for Nuance at one point or another. Yeah, <laughs> so they uh, it's uh, the the original Entune and the um, uh, Lexus Enform, I think, is the branding that they use on the Lexus vehicles. Uh, are they're all developed by, uh, with Nuance? Um, and uh, starting this fall, or actually starting this spring, with the launch of the new Camry. Um, they're starting to transition over to a next generation Entune system, which is all new, much more powerful, uh, and hopefully should be a lot better. Yeah, it's t- and I understand that it's tough when you roll these things out and they have to have a life of you know four to five years maybe of you know being able to handle upgrades and new features and uh, you know drive larger screens and all of those things. Um, and so when they get to the end of the life, they're gonna be they're gonna feel really behind the times um, as the competition has updated uh, what their systems do as well. So it does put automakers in a tough spot and they can't be redeveloping these things every every year. 
And, so, you know, that's that's one of the keys behind, um, you know, the the appeal of, of smartphone projection systems. You know, if you can have your phone you know, apps from your phone just be projected up onto the screen so that you're not relying on, you know, what's built into the vehicle for, you know, five, 10, 12 years. Um, and, you know, you can use whatever the latest thing is from your phone, you know, then hopefully that should be, you know, that should work better than whatever is built in. Yeah. Uh, and, and to, to a large degree, I think it does, but we'll, we'll come back to that later when we, uh, answer one of the listener questions well and you can you can blame the phone manufacturer for any performance problems uh, exactly <laughs> no i mean i i don't want to be the car like the car guy dinging the lexus for being a lexus you know there's a lot of subtle really hard work uh making this the rx 450s as as perfected as it it is um and I, I i at least they're trying to put a little bit more oomph into it um you know it's still still not my kind of cars comfortable enough i i guess but what they replaced it did with you, was you, well, first, hold on before oh, okay. you before right. you well, go we'll on to up. what came next yeah um did uh was yours an f sport no okay no it's just the rx 450h so and it like it, the throttle is very mushy in the regular mode which annoyed the crap out of me so i wound up in sport like all the time just so that it would be somewhat responsive um and it's not like i wanted to peel out i just like I'm the kind of person I don't like automatic modes and stuff. And just like, I, I want the machine to do what I ask the machine to do when I ask it to do it. Um, when I first got my first cars with electronic throttles, they drove me nuts for a couple of weeks. Cause I could feel the lag between my foot, like my, my input and the actual system responding. It drove me bonkers. Um, I eventually got used to it. So they won, but <laughs> I have one, one more question for you before sure. we continue on. Um, and I'm trying to remember if the, the, the new RX, uh, does it have the touchpad or does it have like the little stubby joystick? No touchpad, just stubby joystick. Okay. I have okay. used the touchpad in. The RC one, has one, it and yeah. the NX has it. I think I used it in the NX, but I'm not sure which I I've, I've played with it. Uh, it's the touchpad stuff. Like, it intrigues me. It's better in some ways. Like, I really liked it in the, uh, the Audi, uh, the last Audi I had, um, which I think was an a four. Um, I found it really actually convenient. And it's, and it's funny, like, because it does, it's, it's actually not as convenient for some people as it, I found it. It's just, you know, cause I think you actually, you thought it was, is easier to use a, a different way to input stuff to it. Um, so it's just having multiple input methods and, and what just like the most immediate way for that person to, to interact with the machine. So, uh, I think we're going to see more of that across all, all automakers is there's not going to be just one way to get information into the system or make a request, you know, the, and we're seeing it too. Like we've got systems with like in BMWs, they have the touchscreen and the iDrive controller. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're, they're multimodal systems. Yeah. No, there's so, actually a word for it. There yes. We go. <laughs> yes. There's a, a, an actual uh, term of art. Excellent. Um, well, all right. So what, what did you trade in the RX for? All the gas I saved has been completely burned because they, they dropped off a charger SRT Hellcat. Oh, so you um, got the opposite of the Pacifica hybrid. Yes. Uh, holy, holy crap. This car is an animal. Um, which is, it's aptly named. Uh, but I don't really want to talk too much about the 700 horsepower engine. Yes. It's very powerful. It has supercharger wine. It's, 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 it's what else you could just say? It's a 700 horsepower engine. It's brilliant. 
uh, and it sounds fantastic. What I think gets missed in a lot of discussions about the Hellcat cars is they have really upgraded the chassis. They've tuned it very well. I would take this car without the engine. You could put the base V6 in it. I don't care. Put the Tiger Shock four cylinder in it. If it rode and handled like this, if every Charger rode and handled like this and had the transmission tuned the way this one, this the automatic is, I would I would love the hell out of that car. Um, they've they've done a very good job uh, taking an old car and making it cope with the most powerful production engine uh, I think has ever been put in a car. Uh, well, the, the most powerful production engine in an American car. Right. And actually, okay, now it's right. only the second most powerful. Right. Because yeah. Because you got the demon now. Yeah. Um. The, the, and uh, so, what's your take on it? By the way, Automotive News thinks it should not be on the road. I think that's a little specious. Well, the the reality is, you know, most of them won't be on the road anyway. Most yeah. of them are going to be garage queens. They're only building three thousand of them for the U.S. market, and another three hundred for uh, for Canada. Um, and you know, most of them are going to end up as either garage queens or you know the owners will you know, install the uh, requisite safety gear, you know, uh, roll cages and fire equipment and so on, and and use them at the drag strip. Yeah. Um, which you know that one of the one of the interesting things when they when they launched the demon you know shortly afterwards reports came out you know that NHRA had banned it from their sanctioned drag strips and that was only sort of partially true uh, you know what what the the ruling was uh, the way the NHRA rules are uh, any car that's capable of sub ten second quarter mile times um has to have a certain level of safety gear built into it and the uh, demon does not come with all that safety gear from the factory it's all readily available uh, but mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't come installed from the factory and so if you want to run a demon at an nhra sanctioned stri drag strip uh, you will have to put in that that equipment and you also have to have um, a, a certain minimal level of competition license as well and that is that is crazy they're being smart and not equipping it with all of that safety gear and taking on all the liability. Uh, well, I mean, you know, the, the other the other alternative would have been and would have been to, you know, build something like the, um, you know, the the Mustang Cobra jets. Um, and in fact, um, uh, you know, Chrysler does offer uh, a competition, a factory, you know, uh, drag strip drag car. Uh, drag race version of the challenger anyway that you can buy uh through mopar uh so you know what they wanted was effectively uh a, a barely street legal version of a, comp a, a competition drag car and like i said the vast majority of them you know i mean these things are going to be very expensive and you know most of them are probably never even going to get driven on public roads you know they'll um, you know, some will some will get used in competition. The rest will be garage queens or they might get pulled out once or twice a year for something like the Woodward Dream Cruise. We're definitely going to hear when the first one gets wrapped into something. I mean, I, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's which that that's that bugs me. Like if we're going to be automotive journalists, if we're going to pretend to be journalists, maybe we should not um, be doing. Well, I mean, that version of. You know, yeah, I mean, that film. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's not journalism. That's, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, that's yeah. that's, you know, 11 o'clock local news. Yeah. Um, but uh, now, have you had a chance to drive the Hellcat? Uh, the only chance, the only opportunity I ever had to drive a Hellcat was actually um, at the Chrysler Proving Grounds a couple of years ago. 
uh, during their what's new event that they hold every year. Uh, I have not yet had a chance to get into a Hellcat uh, for a week long review. What did you think of it when you drove it? I know, I know it's a sort of very controlled environment there, but. I love the sound of that engine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and you're, you're right, though, about the uh, the handling. I mean, you know, can, when you look back at, you know, American muscle cars, you know, of the, the classic era, you know, the late 1960s, you know, these things were not nearly as powerful as what you can buy today. You know, they were not as not as efficient. You know, they, you know, did not run reliably if it was too hot or too cold, you know, because they had big honking carburetors on them. Um, and, you know, they couldn't turn, you know, they couldn't change direction. You know, if you tried, uh, they could barely stop at the end of a drag strip. So, you know, I mean, th th that they were able to make something that powerful and that refined um, you know, and able to, you know, go around the handling course at the Chelsea Proving Grounds, uh, as well as that thing did is really pretty amazing. I'm, I'm, yeah, I think that that gets lost in the, all the superlatives about the engine, which deserves every, every bit that it gets. But yeah, it, they started with the great engine. They added a supercharger to it. It's pretty great. Um, the the rest of the car though it's a to, it's a very it's total package and they they took an old piece of hardware these are old cars it's a 10 plus year old platform that's uh, uh, at this point it's closer to 20 years old yeah it, yeah, yeah it was it's old based on the, uh, yeah on a couple generation back uh, mercedes e-class platform boy does it feel good um mm -hmm. And you would expect an engine this powerful would would show up all of the deficiencies. You know, it would just twist it up as if no. It. I haven't really looked around to see what's been, what's been you know sort of beefed up and extra gusseting and and all of that. But uh, it feels really good from behind the wheel. And you know, Z-rated tires are some of my favorite things on earth because <laughs> of the way you know they they just telegraph what's going on. You know how much grip you have and. And that's really important with a car like this, uh, because it, it, I have not shut off the traction control because it's been raining since I got the car. Today was the first like afternoon that it was clear. Um, and one of the things you do with a car like this when you need to familiarize yourself with it is you don't be stupid. You know, you have that much power underfoot. Um, it's we've all seen the videos of Mustangs leaving cars, cars and coffee. I mean, this is the same kind of thing. It's a very powerful rear wheel drive car. Even if you have driving experience, uh, it's very easy to get crossed up and the thing will just snap around and bite you. Uh, so you have to be really careful. I've been impressed with how easy it is to drive this car carefully and gently. Uh, it doesn't really bite. Um, you can certainly feel it break traction. If you goose it a little too much, you know, on an on-ramp or something in second gear, you'll feel it break free, but it, it really, it settles down. You just back off and it straightens right out and it just, it does its thing. And it, you, you have to ask for it. <laughs> if you, if you uh, want to even driving it with the black key or the red key, red key. Okay. Um, so every morning I get in and it, it starts up in eco mode. So it's only 500 horsepower, which <laughs> is plenty fine. I mean, it's, it's just, it's insane to think yeah. of a car like that, you know, with an eco mode. Um, and so I switch it to, uh, 
I played around a little bit. I had set the suspension to track the transmission I left with street, uh, set the power to 700 and stuff. But it's it's certainly more easy to commute in when you leave it in in eco mode where you restrict the power to 500 horsepower and the the responses to street versus track and and stuff. But um, yeah, it's it's such a capable car in a lot of ways. And it's not just a drag racer. It's it's definitely it, it handles very well. Um, but the fact that you can just start up, like I could remote start it with the key fob and it, like, if it were 20 degrees out it'd start right up and it would idle, it'd be loud, uh, mm. <laughs> but, but it would just, you know, like, and that's what blew my mind about the CTSV a few years ago too, is like, these, these are like the most high performance capable cars. And it's, it's, it's a screaming bargain at like $70,000, the way it's equipped, um, for, for the performance you get, but they're just like, so so refined uh so easy to live with that was never the case before you know the, the street hemis back in the day were yeah they were really powerful but they were cantankerous uh, yeah i mean you know they would barely idle um you know if it got too hot you'd get vapor locked and you know if it got too cold you know trying to start the thing would be nearly impossible yeah none and, of those problems and, and there's <laughs> and there's nothing like trying to stop a high power car with four-wheel drum brakes yeah, you get uh, one half good stop and that's it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I'm going to try it tomorrow. I'll try the commute. I'm getting 16 miles to the gallon, which is dead on to what it says it's supposed to get um, in mixed driving. So I'm, I'm impressed with that, too, when you consider the amount of power it has. Um, I'm going to put in eco mode and, and see what I can return for fuel economy. I, I anticipate I'll get between 17 and 18, which is just that's astounding in a car like this. So. Uh, yeah, I, I like it quite a bit. <laughs> um, I think most, most people who like cars would like it quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you know, I, I, I fully appreciate the need, you know, for us to be more environmentally sensitive, but you know, there's just something visceral, you know, when you feel that, you know, with a big V8 engine, you know, you feel that, that vibration, it feels like a heartbeat, you know, it feels like the thing is alive, you know, and it just gets to you. I don't, you know, I don't know what it is, you know, the sound and the feel of it. There's nothing like it. I, yeah, I agree with that. Just, just like I, I parked it in the garage this morning at work and I never really park in the garage, but I parked in there so I could hear it rumble. <laughs> <laughs> so I just sat there for like a minute or two before I shut it off. And then when I, when I came out at the, the end of the day, I put the windows down before I started it so I could hear it echo off the, yeah. It's it's a car guy's car for sure. Yeah, and you know, and it like I said, it's the complete opposite of the Pacifica Hybrid, which you can yeah. drive around that thing, you know, all day long, you know, in complete silence, you know, without ever hearing the engine at all, you know, just just the electric drive, not a sound. Yeah, I I I need the I need the car that that chats with me. I actually shut the radio off and just listened to the the engine for half of my commute this morning uh, as well. Nothing um, wrong with that. Yeah, so clearly I'm I'm enjoying it. I'm completely biased, but uh, if you share the bias, you'll like the Hellcat. Um, yeah. All right. Let's well, let's stay with Chrysler and let's we'll get to topics. Um, one of the things that popped up is that there are more rumors that the Jeep and the uh, Ram brands could be spun off. Uh, if they were to do that, first of all, I I don't know how possible that is, but Chrysler has certainly not been shy about trying to shack up with someone and uh if they were to sell off jeep and ram that's basically the value center of the company i don't know what they're left with at that point yeah i don't know you know um 
Marchione a couple of weeks ago, you know, said, you know, he's basically called off the search for a partner. Um, you know, he's given up on trying to get somebody to buy FCA or to merge with them uh, after being spurned by Volkswagen um, and GM and, and everybody else in the world. <laughs> so, um, you know, now, you know, he was asked at an event uh, yesterday or the day before uh, by Adam Jonas, uh, a financial analyst, you know, whether he would consider spinning off Jeep and Ram. And he just gave the one word answer. Yes. Um, which to me, you know, on the surface seems nuts. You know, I mean, certainly those of, of all the brands within the FCA family, um, you know, those are certainly the two most profitable um, by a pretty wide margin, I think. Um, and, you know, they generate the bulk of the revenues, especially here in North America. I think Jeep and Ram, you know, account for 80% of, of FCA's uh, revenues in North America. Yeah, I think they, they, Jeep in particular is also especially popular in China. Yeah, they, they sell a lot of Jeeps in China and it's also, they're popular in Europe as well. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a globally popular brand. Uh, and, you know, even even the uh, the Wrangler, you know, the the old school style Jeep, you know, is popular around the world, uh, you know, for for obvious reasons. Um, you know, Ram is clearly, you know, pretty much a, a North American exclusive uh, brand for the most part, although they do sell some in the Middle East and, and some other markets. But it's, it's primarily a North American brand with the pickup trucks. Uh, but, you know, certainly that's, you know, those those two brands are FCA's cash cows. And if they were to spin those off as separate companies, you know, it's like what's left. You know, you've got Chrysler, you know, which, which has the Pacifica and the and the Challenger uh, or the the, um, the 300 Dodge with the Charger and Challenger. You know, now they've dropped the Dart and they, they still have the Durango um, and Alfa Romeo and Maserati, you know, which have, you know, puny uh, sales volumes. So. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like you know, if, if I had to think of a parallel, it would be like like Yahoo. Uh, you know, they they sold off all their their core assets to Verizon, you know, all their all their websites and everything else. And they're left with this little holding company that they're renaming to. I can't even remember what, um, you know, and, you know, that's it just has some investments you know, their investments in Yahoo Japan and Alibaba and stuff. That's kind of like what would be left of FCA if they did this. Well, but yes and no. Right. Uh, when he, he we I wish he had kept going after that one question um, because it, it makes the speculation sort of unravel and spinning them off as a standalone company doesn't mean selling them off necessarily. It means Right. It could be like Ferrari, you know, where they still own a significant chunk of the shares. You know, they they do an IPO on those two brands, you know, and and sell off, you know, part of the the shareholding in that, you know, as separate stocks. Uh, But still, you know, over over time, you know, they're they're likely to keep selling off more and more of it, I think. Or somebody else, you know, some other manufacturer might come in and, and start buying the shares on the open market and end up, you know, taking over those brands uh entirely yeah um what, one one interesting thing that that occurred to me today though um is if they did do that you know okay so they're left with with chrysler and dodge here in north america as as their two primary brand you know core brands that are left um you know they earlier this week it was announced that waymo the uh 
the Google self-driving car spinoff was expand was launching their early rider program. You know, basically they're they're starting to do a pilot test of their on-demand autonomous mobility service uh, starting in Phoenix, and uh, you know they built a fleet of a hundred um, autonomous Chrysler Pacifica hybrids uh, last fall. And they're expanding that. They're getting another 500. They're buying another 500 vans from Chrysler, and they're going to equip them with their self-driving uh, system. Um, what if FCA spins off Jeep and Ram, and basically what you're left with Chrysler is Pacifica, you know, because the you know the the Charger, you know, who knows, or the 300, who knows how many years that's got left in it. Uh, so you're, it's basically the Pacifica. And what if that becomes a partner, a manufacturing partner for Waymo and well, you know, provides had, them with vehicles? Yeah, I had almost the same thought was, okay, he's he's been shopping the company around for a few years. He's tried to tried to link up with GM and, and other uh, possibilities, you know, another small car maker, because that's sort of the hole in their portfolio right now. Um, what if a company, you know, one of those kind of ridiculously capitalized companies, I clearly, you know, Waymo or, you know, Uber or some other company just, just buys them, buys Chrysler. Then, you know, and it goes back to what your uh, Navigant leaderboard report suggests too, is that the future favors companies that are more vertically integrated. Part of that is why you get you, you guys in, in doing the research and putting the report together, uh, put GM and Ford on the track to, to really be, become the leaders or, or are already emerging as the leaders with, with autonomy because they make the cars and making all the other stuff are things they can do as well versus, you know, a company like, like Uber or Waymo where they don't make the cars. They, they make the stuff that goes in the cars or, you know, some other way. Waymo kind of makes a car that thing, but it's not, it's not really a car. The little pod, the firefly. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you know, the, that was never intended to be a production vehicle. That was that was just a development platform that they, you know, they they went to Roush um, and had them build those for them, uh, you know, as, in order to test their hardware and have a have a, a dedicated platform that they could use to um, develop their system. Yeah. So, like, what if one of these these, uh, you know, non-automaker mobility providers that has enough money to buy an automaker just buys an automaker. Certainly a distinct possibility. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I, I would not, um, I would not rule it out. Uh, not at all. I mean, it, it's, it, it's something that, that could be done, you know, it's see, uh, SCA's, uh, what's their market cap? I think, I think, who should buy it is Tesla because Tesla is going to have a tough time over the next couple of years. Uh, Tes Tesla doesn't have the cash to buy them. I know. Um, and as the next few years play out, I don't think they're going to ever be in a better cash position than they are now. Um, well, and they're, I mean, uh, FCA's market cap right now is $17 billion. So, I mean, you know, they could certainly do a, they could do a merger if they wanted to. But the thing is, I don't, I don't think that, um, that Elon Musk would ever want to do that because he does not want any part of any company that is building anything but EVs. Yeah. But so that's stupid. 
<laughs> on. I mean, so, and some of the things that we've seen about Tesla too, like uh, there was coverage about how they're like doing all this revolutionary stuff to like you know bring high tech auto manufacturing to the the car the you know the car world. And you know, you look at it and you're like, oh yeah. You guys are they're, they're getting all know. this stuff from a from a company that is already a supplier to the auto industry and already selling a lot of the same kind of equipment to other car companies. Right. There was like gee whiz coverage that that Tesla is now no longer, you know, going to production with soft tooling. They're using, you know, uh, you know, more durable tooling going straight to production. It's like, yeah, the real automakers have been doing that for a long time, guys. It's like, yeah, you're doing it the, the medieval way. The, the, the only <laughs> the only difference in what they're doing or what, the, you know, based on what we've seen, you know, what they appear to be doing is they skipped the the pre-production step where, you know, uh, normally, you know, these days when manufacturers are uh, getting ready to uh, to when they're building their integration prototypes, you know, they will bring in the, you know, the production intent tooling into their prototype facilities and, you know, they'll set up the machines in there and actually use the production, the production intent machines. You know, those machines will get modified during the course of over the course of several months as they're building up their fleet of integration prototypes. You know, and they work out the, the manufacturing processes, you know, with, you know, with the machines in, in a different, in a separate facility. And then once they get all that worked out, you know, figure out, OK, what are, what's the sequence that we need to do to to assemble these parts, to get it all to go together most efficiently. Once they figure that out, then they take those machines and they transfer them into the factory. And then they build more of those machines and, and flesh out the, the, the line. Um, you know, it's, they, they just, they skipped a step, you know, they just went straight to putting them right in the factory. That's, that's the only difference. And we'll see how that all works out for them in a few months. Hey, Katie bar the door. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it makes it, if I'm Tesla and I'm having these these troubles and I'm trying to ambitiously build a, uh, a somewhat revolutionary car, but certainly a very advanced car at a very aggressive price, wouldn't it make sense to have, you know, in-house a long experience, you know, a very, so you're not trying to buy that talent either. Like you just like you want to have that that experience and also just the sprawl of facilities that owning a manufacturer would do for you and the other product lines that would also, you know, make sure that you've got some money to work with if things go a little weird, you know, like, I don't know. seems like it would yeah, be a I good mean, move. Yes. I mean, it, uh, from a purely business perspective, it makes total sense, but um, you, you have to keep in mind that, you know, Musk has no interest in having anything to do with any company that makes ICE engines. You know, internal combustion engines. He he, he okay. doesn't he doesn't want any part of that. He wants to be pure electric all the way. And okay, you know, I mean, so, I can respect that. That's fine. yeah. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I, I certainly respect that. It makes it a lot more challenging uh, to get from here to sustainable profitability. Um, but you know, we'll see. But you know, I think I think the idea of you know Waymo or Google or Alphabet potentially you know maybe buying up the core. Um, you know, part, part of Chrysler, you know, the core assets, you know, maybe the, maybe the Chrysler brand and, um, and, you know, the Pacifica, uh, intellectual property, um, and maybe even some Fiat stuff. You know, I mean, you, you know, what we could, 
you know, because, you know, part of, you know, from the conversations I've had with people at Waymo, you know, what they're looking at for mobility services is a broad range of services, you know, that would encompass a number of different types of vehicles for different applications, you know, so that you're not just going to get, you know, if, if you're summoning a vehicle, you're not just going to get a van, you know, if you're going somewhere on your own, you know, you could have, you know, smaller vehicles, you know, one or two person vehicles, um, you know, when you're going somewhere on your own. So, you know, you could potentially uh, use vehicles like, you know, a Fiat 500, uh, you know, have, a, have an electric autonomous Fiat 500 and, you know, ver various other uh, types of vehicles. So it it would not be totally insane for Google. You know, I mean, they could certainly afford you know, to pay $17 billion to, to buy FCA if they wanted to. I think that we should just take credit for that rumor and say that we started it and <laughs> see what happens. I don't know. I mean, it's a very interesting prospect because there's only so many, there's only so many places you can look in the, the automotive world already. And I, I feel like uh, Sergio Marchioni has really uh, talked to all of them. <laughs> Right. So well, you know, and, and the other thing, you know, is if, okay, if you did spin off um, Jeep and you spun off Ram, you know, what's going to be the market cap of, of what's left of that core company? It's going to be even a lot less than 17 billion, you know, might be, might be under 10, you know, or, you know, as low as, you know, six or 7 billion, you know, for that core part of the company. And again, that makes it even more attractive for somebody like a Waymo to step in and, say okay this is going to be our manufacturing base you know we're, we're going to buy you and, and use use the plants that produce you know these these particular vehicles as our manufacturing base for our uh our autonomous vehicles going forward yeah well and, and honestly everything that's not jeep and ram is the drag on the company right now anyway right yeah, except that's Pacifica. i think you know i think the, the minivans i think are, are profitable yeah, I well, I yeah, and I honestly, I think that. Well, maybe not the Dart or the two hundred, but the well, they're gone. Cars, they're done now. They're they're stopped. They're no longer right. in production. So. But those those things had the at least the potential to be profitable. I'm sure that they made money off everything that was caliber based, uh, just by dint of how long it was in production. You know, the old yeah. Compass and Patriot and stuff, and I, you know, maybe even the caliber was profitable before they they sunset it, and the Avenger and like. Yeah. So the opportunity exists to have those cars be profitable. I just, I don't see anything in their, in their lineup right now that is, uh, and like you said, like the, the 200 and the dart are dead and uh, uh, they're not going to engineer another small car. So I don't, at least not from what I've seen. Yeah. Not, you know, not anything uh, to directly replace, you know, compact and midsize vehicles or compact and midsize cars. Um, you know, they're looking for partners for that, you know, but, you know, in lieu of that, you know, some different kind of deal is certainly a possibility. That would be fascinating. I'd be really interested to see what happens. Um, you know, we talked about, I think everybody, but Apple. <laughs> yeah. So Apple, <laughs> Um, and th th something happened with them. They got uh, they're they're trying to actually, and we've we've actually talked about this possibility too, right? Like Apple not doing their own car, Apple coming in as a uh, 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 supplier. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, there's there's been some, you know, there's been a lot of speculation over the past year. You know, as as some people left Apple and others went in and took, you know, um, Bob Mansfield, a, a former 
senior VP from their uh, hardware development group uh, that, you know, worked on Mac computers for, for many, many years, um, you know, was brought in to take over project Titan. Um, and, you know, there's been all kinds of speculation about what they're, what they're doing with that. Um, and last week, you know, they uh, requested and uh, were granted a permit uh, by the California DMV to test autonomous driving capabilities. And, you know, they're, you know, like as, as Waymo and, and others have done, um, when they've you know started these kinds of programs, you know, they're using off the shelf vehicles. And uh, in this case, they're using, you know, previous generation um, Lexus RX 450 H's, uh, just wonder like if, just yeah, like Google wonder, did. wonder if they're going to find them as exciting as I did. Yeah. Well, you know, they're, they're not meant to be exciting, but you know, no. the, the, the reality is, you know, for what they're doing, you know, the, um, the Toyota hybrid powertrain is a, a pretty well-known, um, uh, you know, well-known well system. Now there's a lot of people that understand how it works. And a lot of people, you know, from various companies that have worked with these, you know, for their autonomous development. So, you know, they know where to tap into things, you know, to, to control the various elements of the car um, with, with their systems. And, you know, I got to thinking when they were granted that license last week, you know, there, there's been a, some other stories of, of late, you know, one of the things, you know, with, um, with the iPhone and, you know, with some of Apple's other uh, mobile devices, you know, one of the, the things that's made those uh, devices so good you know, is they've had great, great performance and great battery life um, compared to a lot of other brands, particularly Android systems, because, you know, Apple designs their own chips and, um, you know, they're, they're based on, you know, the ARM, uh, you know, uh, instruction set. But they they design their own custom chips and they have them fabbed by Samsung and TSMC and and other companies sometimes. Um, but they're they're optimized for their operating system, and you know they have their own uh, image processing. and And a couple of years ago, they bought a, an Israeli company called PrimeSense that developed the original um, Microsoft Xbox Connect sensor. So you know, they've got some interesting sensing technologies there. They've got processing, they've got software. So, and, you know, they invested last year, a billion dollars in a Chinese company called DD Shusing, which is, um, you know, the biggest ride hailing company in China. Uh, and DD, you know, this, that investment came a few weeks after uh, Uber decided to exit the China market and sold their Chinese assets to DD as well. So um, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, all these things are starting to come together. And I, I, what I think Apple is most likely to do now, if they if they proceed with this, is not to build an Apple car, but to do something very similar to um, what Delphi is doing and basically build the whole um, self-driving stack. You know, so they they'll they'll have their own processors that they've designed that are optimized for this application, their software, uh, probably their own sensor systems just like Waymo has done um, and have uh, a services component, because that's something that, you know, Apple CEO, Tim Cook has talked a lot about building out as their services business, you know, so they can offer a turnkey solution to another, excuse me, to another manufacturer. Like, Oh, let's see uh, who, who, who might want something like that. Oh, Fiat Chrysler, maybe, <laughs> um, you know, if they, if things, you know, go south with Waymo, you know, they, or, you know, if, if Apple has something better to offer than what Waymo has, you know, they could, 
decide to use the Apple system or, you know, companies like Mazda or, you know, some of the other smaller uh, OEMs uh, could adopt that. Or, you know, Apple could decide to buy up, you know, some, you know, one of the smaller automakers, you know, and use their manufacturing base um, to put out their own vehicles. Yeah, it's um, that that component about offering like the full stack, I think, is one of the things that automakers might go after, uh, especially with Apple's reputation for uh, uh, a user experience focus, um, because that's really hard and it's really expensive and uh, Apple's very good at it. And so to be able to say, like, we've developed this stuff, it runs on this hardware and here's how we know how to integrate it into your your vehicle. I guess the missing piece for me is that if they're doing all the development on, you know, the Toyota hybrid powertrain, what happens if, uh, you know, if GM comes knocking and GM wants to integrate it with their hybrid powertrain, which is, is, oh, they, is they can figure out, they can figure out those problems. I mean, that's those, those are not instrument. You know, that integration is not insurmountable. I mean, you know, look at, um, you know, Google and, and FCA, you know, it only took them a few months to do that on the Pacifica. Uh, so, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, once, once, once you get the OEM involved, they already know all the connection points. Um, so, it wouldn't be that big of a deal, you know, to integrate somebody else's system in there. Hmm. Yeah. So, and, and there, you know, there's other companies, you know, even some of the bigger companies like, you know, Honda or, or Toyota might be interested as well. I would be psyched to have a Honda with some kind of Apple tech interface because <laughs> <laughs> boy, I do not like the one that they've got now. Uh, yeah. I mean, <sighs> What do you think it looks like? Like what, what's um, what's it going to be like? Is it going to be of you know an, an entire solution that's really just a, a part of vehicle and limited to hybrids and EVs, or or could we see this like across an automaker's lineup if that's what happens? Well, I mean, you could certainly put it across a variety of different vehicles, you know, certainly of different types of vehicles, because you know one of the one of the appealing things about the whole idea of of on demand autonomous mobility is that you can you can summon whatever type of vehicle you need at a particular time and you, you know when you buy a car um you know you you buy it for you know what it, whatever your worst case scenario is you know i mean if you need to tow a, tow a boat a few times a year uh to the lake you know you're gonna buy you know a truck or a big suv that can that can tow that um you know if you've got a a you know, big family, you know, you might buy a big SUV or a minivan, um, you know, but if there, if you need to go somewhere on your own, you don't need all that space, you know, at, you know, all the time. So, you, you know, you can have something that's, you know, uh, real time, right sized for what you need at that, that moment in time. You know, so if you're just going to a meeting, you know, or going to a doctor's appointment or whatever it might be, then you you summon a little car and if you've got to take the whole family somewhere you get something bigger um so you know having having multiple vehicles in the lineup that all use the same hardware and operate on the same mobility platform could you know could work out very well so how soon do we think that this is going to arrive um well considering that they're just starting road testing now um and you know as best we know they don't have any any contracts with any manufacturers, um, you know, it's going to be, you're, you're talking at least, uh, 2022, 2022, 23 at this point, you know, to, you know, if you, 
if they, you know, if they got a, a contract with, with one of the car makers, you know, within the next 12 months, you know, then you've got to do the integration and validation, you know, on a particular vehicle, you know, that's probably going to be a three or four year process. So uh, I would not, I would not expect to see anything before at least 21 or 22 and probably later than that. That's a little bit of a wait. Yeah. I mean, it's not too much, but, but you know, I mean, it's, it's not that far behind, you know, the, the rest of the leaders in the business. I mean, it's going to be 2020, 2021 before most of these are out there in some sort of production form anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe in the meantime, you know, certain pieces of it can be used as, as well. So, so that it could be almost like a staggered rollout, you know, get people used to, you know, some, some part of the interface or some part of the, you know, I don't know. Now I'm just going into like product planning strategic mode. So we mm-hmm. should just, we should move to something else. Uh, so let's see. Um, so we, we had last week after, after the show last week, we got an email from, uh, from a listener from, uh, let's see, Paul. And he was asking about, um, uh, you know, well, let me read it here. Discussions of autonomous cars focus on the autonomous vehicle avoiding other vehicles, pedestrians, bicyclists, and motorcycles, all good things to avoid. However, people are not the only things on our roadways. Wildlife often crosses roads, like the rabbit that I saw uh, as I was walking the dog uh, earlier uh, today that um, did not get missed by a human-driven vehicle. Ooh. Yeah. Well, there's lots of them around. There's lots of them around here. That's so. just bad anyway, luck, isn't it? Right. So some, sp- some species won't damage cars if hit, such as rabbits. Uh, but others will, such as deer or, or moose. Uh, in virtually all cases, the collision is fatal for the wildlife. Um, I presume that all companies working on autonomous cars are programming them to avoid large animals such as deer or moose. But what about programming cars to avoid smaller animals that pose no threat to the car? I can differentiate between a lost bungee cord and a snake crossing the road. Uh, I can also differentiate between a turtle and road debris. Will autonomous cars be able to do the same? Are researchers, developers working on this issue and so on? So basically, um, first, let me touch on what humans can and cannot recognize. you know, I think the ability, the degree to which humans can distinguish some of these things uh, varies wildly, to put it to put it bluntly. Um, you know, and I think depending on the conditions, um, you know, there's a there's a good chance that most people would not be able to distinguish, especially at nighttime. Um, you know, and depending on the lighting conditions, um, you know, depending on how light is hitting uh, a, a branch you know, or, a, or a bungee cord laying on the road versus a snake. Um, and depending on how fast you're going, I think there's a there's a high probability that, that most humans would not be able to detect the difference. Well, and some humans would be perfectly OK with running over a snake. That's true, too. Snake. <laughs> So not okay. Um, It's just, it's yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the reality is, you know, the engineers working on this stuff, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the AI parts of this are focused on uh, image recognition, uh, you know, and being able to distinguish what is it the sensors are seeing in front of me? Is that an animal? Is that a solid object that is going to be harmful if I hit it or, you know, uh, you know, is that just a, an empty cardboard box sitting on the road, which I can run over with impunity? Um, so there, there is a lot of effort going into trying to distinguish these things. The systems are not going to be perfect, especially early on. Um, you know, there, there are going to be a lot of uh, mistaken identifications. Um, just as, just as we do, you know, we, we make mistakes, 
But I think, um, you know, what we're going to see is to the degree that they can recognize what it is, you know, if it's an animal, you know, that's going to be part of the decision making process. And, you know, that feeds into the, the path planning algorithms, you know, it's like determining where's, where's the car going to go? You know, am I going to, is the car going to change lanes or is it going to go straight ahead or is it going to turn? Um, you know, so when the sensors detect something in the road, you know, the first step, you know, try to identify it. You know, if it, if it is a small animal, um, you know, then then it goes into the next part of the algorithm to decide, OK, what am I? You know, I know that the vehicle's going to survive the collision with the small animal, but I'd prefer not to hit it if I can avoid it. You know, would it be safe for me to change lanes and try to avoid it or can I safely stop? You know, so it's going to depend on is there somebody right behind me? You know, how fast am I going now? What's my closing speed? All, all of the same kind of factors that we think about. Um, or that most of us think about when, when we're driving as humans, you know, are going to play into this, you know, so you're going to, you're going to try to make the best decision you can, but there's going to be times when, when the machine is going to hit the animal and kill it. Um, and there's going to be times when it's going to be able to avoid it. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, where that is. Yeah. The, that's an interesting challenge for it, you know, and that's, those are, I think the nuance that a human brings to the, the driving experience. And you, you don't think about this stuff, right? Like nobody wants to hit an animal if you can avoid it. Um, you make that decision. That's an interesting programming challenge. I think is just to, to have, have your, your software actually have to make that decision at a certain point. Like, nope, it's not safe for me to avoid the animal. I need to hit it. <laughs> Like, you know, you know, I mean, we often talk about, you know, programming ethics into these systems. You know, you've got the the classic trolley problem of, you know, do you hit a single individual over here or, you know, hit a busload of people over there? Bus full of nuns every time. Well, so, you know, I mean, this is, you know, the same kind of problem, you know, obviously on a much smaller scale, you know, and you're not. Hopefully, you know, hopefully you're not talking about, you know, the decision of whether to hit a human or not. Um, you know, but, you know, what, regardless of what it is, you know, whether it's human or an inanimate object, you know, you still have to make the same kinds of, of judgments. And, you know, there's going to be degrees, um, you know, uh, whether it's a small animal, large animal, you know, I think ideally you want to try to avoid the collision regardless of what it is. Um, but you know, it's going to depend on a lot of other factors that are, of what's going on around the vehicle. And, you know, one example of this, uh, last week, um, GM posted another is, I think this is a third, third or fourth video that they've posted, uh, from one of the autonomous Chevy bolts that they have driving around San Francisco that, uh, the, the team from cruise automation is working on. And this is, this one, this one that they recorded, uh, during nighttime driving. And the, I think the whole video is about 15 minutes long and I didn't watch the whole thing all the way through, but, um, if at some point in the video, there's a, a scene where the car is driving down the street at night and a raccoon goes wandering across the road and, Personally, you know, given my experience with raccoons and my chickens, you know, I would I would have no no compunction about hitting the raccoon. Uh, But in this case, (laughs) the the self-driving bolt uh, did, in fact, um, you know, recognize the raccoon and and came to us or slowed down. I can't remember if it came to a complete stop or not, but it it slowed down enough to uh, 
yeah, it, it slowed down and the raccoon got out of the way before it got to that point. So it didn't have to come to a complete well, actually it was, it was coming up to a stop sign anyway. Um, so, you know, it did, it did manage to avoid the raccoon. Uh, but I think, you know, in this particular example, you can see in the video that, you know, it was on a two way street. And uh, if the raccoon had not gotten out of the way in time, you know, it would not be practical for the, the autonomous car to, you know, to swerve to the left to avoid it because there was oncoming cars coming in the other direction. Um, so, you know, it, it has to make the same kind of decision that we do on a daily basis. Yeah. So, and you know, that's, it's good that it was able to avoid it in that situation when accidents do happen, like the, in the highly publicized Uber crash that happened in, in Tempe. Um, I, one of the things that we're seeing now you should is, write something about. Yeah, that. I should. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was rather pleased with it because I took a month. It got completely stale, but uh, bad stuff kept happening for Uber. So I yeah. was able to just publish it. And like it was, you know, I had to change a couple of details, but that, that's a great company right. for, for procrastinating journalists. Um, <laughs> I, I just let perfect. Sorry for the diversion there. No, that's fine. Um, the, you know, when it, when it can't avoid crashes and, and they happen, uh, you know, I don't think anybody, it, it doesn't seem like anybody's really taken into account the role of law enforcement um, when they come upon one of these, you know, uh, are, how do you make sure the car is safe for them to even, you know, get people out of? And I know this was an issue with hybrids and electric cars too, especially if they, there's a, an, you know, a bad crash, you know, is it going to, is it going to electrocute people? Um, and then uh, who, who is at fault? Uh, if the car is at fault, um, how do you know the data that it's collected? Who owns that data? You know, there's a lot of questions that, that you know we're going to have to solve to to make these more widespread. I didn't I didn't even think of it from the law enforcement uh, angle, and I guess nobody else has thought of it either. Yeah, apparently not. Um, uh, uh, Pete Bigelow at Car and Driver uh, wrote posted an article today. Uh, about the the law enforcement impact of autonomous vehicles, at least in terms of of crashes uh, and crash investigation, uh, yeah. And as you as you said, you know, with with electrified vehicles, you know, that's one of the factors. You know, the the whole um, idea of uh, how first responders have to deal with these things um, was uh, worked into the design of these vehicles. So one of the things you'll find if you look into you know, and any hybrid or, or plug-in hybrid or battery electric vehicle, um, you know, wherever the bat, somewhere where the battery is, you'll find that there's a big orange fuse that you can pull out, um, you know, which is put there for first responders. And basically that cuts off power from the battery to any of the high voltage systems in the vehicle. So in the event of an accident with any of these kinds of vehicles, the first thing that the first responders will do you know, is go in and pull out that fuse to make sure that uh, there's no juice flowing out of the battery. Uh, and, you know, that's something we find on all these vehicles. And I think, you know, before we start deploying these vehicles on the road, we need to, to make some decisions. And whether it's um, a regulatory mandate uh, or, uh, you know, which is something that's probably unlikely to happen in the current political environment, uh, or, you know, we establish, um, an SAE, uh, standard, uh, that, you know, and generally with SAE standards, you know, 
pretty much all man, almost all manufacturers will um, will comply with those uh, because they're usually all participants in developing those standards. So we probably at, at the very least need to develop some standards for um, having uh, some sort of kill switch in any kind of self-driving or any sort of automated vehicle so that in the event of a crash, uh, you know, uh, a firefighter or paramedic or a police officer can reach in there, you know, hit the, hit the kill switch and disable any of the automated driving systems so that they don't have to worry about the vehicle suddenly starting to move off on its own. Um, you know, and then there's also data logging, which, you know, when they um, when NHTSA uh, published their uh, autonomous vehicle guidelines last summer, you know, part of what was in there was talking about uh, data logging, you know, recording data. And, and their focus was more on, you know, the current development phase of these vehicles, you know, wanting manufacturers to record data uh, and and keep that uh, so that it can be used, um, you know, to evaluate, you know, as, as they went for as they move forward, you know, and looked at whether or not we need any regulations, special regulations for these vehicles, you know, so they'd have some data to work from. Uh, but I think, you know, going forward, we, we again, we probably need some some established standards, you know, for how much data needs to be recorded and what needs to be recorded as a as a bare minimum, you know, for investigatory purposes, you know, when when we do have crashes involving automated vehicles. Well, and even just a standard uh you know, format for it so that, you know, the, the CSV file or whatever from one system can, you know, be interpreted reliably, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so that the, the data fields are all, they all kind of match up. Um, and it, it, another sort of area to consider is, is uh, like if they're going to put in a kill switch or something, um that has to be standardized pretty much across the industry. Like everybody has to be doing the same thing so that the, the first responders don't go, Oh yeah, this is, this is a a Honda or this is a, you know, a Volkswagen. So the procedure is X versus Y. Like it's, it's gotta be again, it's sort of a standard. Um, Yeah. It needs, it needs to be clear. It needs to be obvious where it is and it needs to be readily accessible uh, so that they can get in there and, and do, do exactly that. Uh, you know, even on, you know, for example, you know, on, on Tesla's, you know, they they have a, a switch. You know, it's actually, uh, I think, underneath the front bumper where you can reach under there, you know, pull that out to uh, um, to kill power from the battery. Don't do that to some random guy's Tesla, though. That's that's not very nice. <laughs> it's just I, although you could you could probably have a lot of fun with that. <laughs> um, hmm. Just don't do it to somebody that you don't know. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and we are not condoning that sort of behavior. No, maybe right? that, absolutely not. No. Nope. Right. Uh, if, if you, you engage in shenanigans, you deserve what you get. That's all I'll say. My, right. my, Remember the golden rule, treat others as you want to be treated. All right. My, my wife's, uh, grandfather used to say, put yourself in danger and you shall perish. I think that those, that's a, <laughs> those are good <laughs> rules to live by. Um, so, yeah, it's just once again, uh, the, you know, as technology evolves, we have to think about all these things. And, and it seems like California is kind of a a leader uh, in in pushing some of this this thought, you know, uh, they're thinking about or, or maybe they have already uh, mandated law enforcement interaction plans. Um, it sounds like they're thinking about it still. And it's going to be well, part you know, of for, for, 
for electric vehicles, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, that uh, manufacturers have done, you know, is they, they publish um, guides uh, for first responders, um, you know, safe, safety guides, you know, for, with information for each vehicle, you know, where, where to find the, the shutoff fuses and, and things like that. And, you know, I know back in 2010, 2011, um, when GM launched the, uh, the Volt original, the original Volt, um, you know, they did, uh, you know, they went around the country and did, uh, training sessions for first responders, uh, all around the country, you know, and they, they had, you know, uh, volts that they took out there, um, you know, including uh, some crashed volts. And, you know, so they use that to train first responders on, you know, based on the, and, and they, I know they do this with other vehicles as well uh, from time to time, you know, so they can know, especially with newer vehicles that have a lot of high strength steel, you know, showing them, you know, if you need to use, you know, if you need to cut through an A-pillar, you know, here's the best place to do it. You know, here's where to use the jaws of life, you know, where you're going to be able to get through the material, that sort of thing. And here's how to handle the batteries safely uh, so that nobody gets electrocuted. So, you know, they're, and they're going to have to do a lot of the same kinds of things with automated vehicles going forward as well yeah um it's it's amazing how many things you have to like how many little pieces of our everyday life you have to just reconsider and re-engineer to make this stuff uh a reality and you know that's that's why you know we can't we can't rush this stuff to market too quickly i mean we we have to think about how we're going to handle these kinds of um, these kinds of situations, you know, because you're going to find all kinds of different scenarios um, that need to be addressed. And, you know, so you've got to come up with some solutions for those, hopefully before, before you encounter them. What you don't think we're going to have like self-driving flying cars by 2020. That's what they're saying. No. <laughs> no. Uh, all right. Uh, well, let's wrap up. The last thing you did when you were in New York was you had an interview with Elena Ford. Uh, uh, so hold on. Before oh. before we get to that, Pardon. Uh, we, we did have one other tweet uh, that came in today uh, from uh, Aaron asking about uh, researching availability of CarPlay and lots of manufacturers just oh. adding in, in 2017 models. Um, and uh, asked about stats on user adoption. We don't have any stats on that, uh, but... You know, certainly, you know, going into 2017 and, and especially into 2018, their CarPlay and Android Auto support is becoming more and more common. Um, you know, and it, it's going to be a lot tougher to find cars, you know, in the next year or so that don't have it than it is to find cars that do have that capability. Uh, so buy a new car. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm sure like aftermarket units are going to at a certain point um, there there are some aftermarket units out there um you know they're they're mostly still fairly pricey um but they they are available um usually in you know doubled in head units uh with touch screens but yeah yeah you, oh, can, you can check them out that it reminds me um oh last, yeah did you put that head unit in your crown vic yet i so i started um the the car is you know I have an old house and it's a like I try not to do anything on it because it's like Pandora's box and the car is a hundred <laughs> years newer and it's the same damn thing it's um you know it I got the the Metra wiring loom adapter kit and I put it all together and you know everything everything works I took the old radio out I had to fab up a uh, Ford uh, radio removal tool because it's been so many years I used to actually have the like the the real tools that go in there's, there's four holes and you just put them in and you pull on them and pop the radio out. Um, I 
I must have disposed of mine from years ago. So we just went to Home Depot, and got some rod, and I just cut it and bent it and whatever. But yes, that works. Uh, and then to actually mount it in the Crown Vic. So the, the 98 to 2003 Crown Vix, the radio is a doubled in in the front, and then it uh, narrows down to a singled in in the rear. And there's a duct for the defroster. And that's why it does that. So it can clear. So it's really uh. in. So a double, a full doubled in does not fit. It bangs into that, that duct. Oh man, that sucks. 2003 and later has a different duct. I have the part number. Um, so cool. I can order either a new one. If it's still available, it's a hundred bucks or I can get a used one, which is my plan because I don't want to spend a hundred bucks on a duct. Um, to, to get this ducked out, this, this is like the piece they built the car around the <laughs> whole dash has to come out. And it's like, it's not a, it sounds bad, but it's not. And it's, it's a bit of a big well, job. I mean, if you, if you think assembly. about it, you know, a, a duct is not something you typically have to replace very often. So, you know, it's right. something that you, you put in when you build the car and then you never think about it again. Yeah. Well, and, and a lot of people don't think about the way the car is built. Right. So they'll, they'll go in and they'll hack and, and including some of the engineers. Right. Well, there's that, um, you know, this is, this is, it's not Ford's fault. This is just a problem of, yeah. of you know, my own doing, um, the, the, the entire dashboard is put into the car as an assembly. Mm-hmm. So you can also remove it as an assembly and it's, 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 you know, a limited number of connections, you know, there's physical connections and there's just maybe eight or 10 bolts and nuts and stuff you got to remove um, some wiring connectors. And then you can lift the dashboard up and sort of plop it forward. Uh, I've, I think I probably have to undo one of the steering U joints as well. So that the, uh, the column can separate. Um, it's, it sounds like, a big deal and it's it's kind of a pain but it's really not that big of a deal and then you can get at the duct from the back i can take a bunch of other pieces out and get the duct and put the new one in so that's that's where we stand the radio functions and so i was i was impressed with what you can get for for aftermarket for not a whole lot of money and i'm psyched to have bluetooth in the car once i actually put it back together cool there's, there's, yeah there's that and the next thing i'm gonna do is figure out suspension tuning because i I hate the way it rides. I, I, yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Need so to you, get to, I need to get some cop car suspension bits. I, yeah, I thought about that. Um, or Marauder pieces. Yeah. The, the, the main thing is the shocks and cop car shocks aren't as good as the Marauder shocks. The Marauder shocks are no longer available and the technology was sold off. I don't, I just don't, I think it was, I forget who it was sold from. They were like Edelbrock at one point and maybe they were sold to Edelbrock. I forget. But it's, I don't think you can get them anymore. So, I don't know. Figure it out. Uh, I kind of want to, like, weigh all the corners and figure out the spring rates and custom valve the shocks. And I'm like, no, that's a whole bunch of money. I'll just I'll buy something that's better. Um, it's a whole lot, of, whole lot of effort for a Crown Vic. But I would learn so much. It would be somewhat interesting. I'd still, at the end of the day, be left with a Crown Vic. That's, Emphasis on somewhat. Yeah, well, I mean... I don't like full frame vehicles. I like unibody vehicles because they are more rigid and they resist, you know, bending and twisting. Um, this car does a lot of bending and twisting. I don't care what people say that. Oh, it's a big, it's a solid car. No, that's the, nonsense. The, the frame is, is strong, but that's where it's like the body that they bolt on the frame is flimsy. I don't want to get hit from the side in this car. I'll die. 
<laughs> so I could, we could do a whole episode of me bitching about the crown Vic. Thanks. Thanks grandma for, for <laughs> the inheritance. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. So you, right. you speak to Ford, you spoke to Elena Ford. Yes. Um, while I was in New York for the auto show, uh, had the opportunity to go down and, and visit, uh, the Ford hub, um, if you've uh, been to uh, lower Manhattan in the last uh, year or so, I guess uh, probably about the last six months or so, you may have noticed that um, they finally opened up the new transit hub at the World Trade Center. Um, and it's a place called the Oculus with this massive white sort of shellfish looking kind of roof over it. It's actually really cool looking. Um, but below that, you know, in addition to, having the stations where all the, the subways and trains come in there, uh, you know, where people can transit, you know, to go to their jobs in the world trade center. Um, there's also a giant shopping mall down there, an underground shopping mall. Well, of course and there is. Of course there is. <laughs> and in, in one of the store storefronts, uh, Ford has set up something called the Ford hub. Um, and it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of brand building exercise. Um, yeah, and what it's intended to do, I mean, you know, if you think about it, most of the, you know, the, the people that are walking through that mall are, you know, people that obviously aren't driving. Um, you know, a lot of them are are either commuters, uh, you know, going back and forth uh, between the city and and out to New Jersey or, or up north to Connecticut or somewhere else. Um, and or they're heading out to uh you know, or in a lot of cases, they're tourists, you know, just uh, checking out the place and, you know, they could be from anywhere. And so what they've done is they've they've put a bunch of interesting little exhibits uh, in this place that are related to some of Ford's mobility efforts. So there's there's no actual car on display in here. So it's not like a, a you know, a, car, a retail car storefront, uh, but they've got guides that will take you through and, um, you know, you can. Uh, there's a, a VR experience where you can, you know, put on uh, an Oculus Rift uh, headset and uh, experience, you know, putting together uh, a Mustang and, and driving that around and uh, some some cool stuff in there. And so um, I had a chance to sit down with uh, Elena Ford, uh, who is uh, a member of the family, and she is the um, uh, vice president of consumer experience. Uh, at Ford, so she works in, in Ford marketing, and uh, we we chatted for about twenty minutes. Uh, also, uh, Rebecca Lindland uh, from KBB uh, was also there. Uh, she's another uh, very respected analyst, and uh, the three of us had a had a really interesting chat about what Ford was doing in the Ford Hub. So we'll uh, go right into that, and then that'll be the end of the show, and uh, we'll see you next week. All right, thanks for listening. All right, bye. Okay, so her first question was, um, why do we do this? How did this happen? How did this happen? <laughs> or what's the idea, right? So um, last year we launched an app called Ford Pass, which is basically our digital connection, uh, on, connecting the online and offline with customers to deliver a best-in-class consumer experience. So we wanted to connect with customers. And that's our digital play and our a piece of the digital puzzle that we have. Within that is our personal connection to customers, which is a guide. We can you can push a button, you can chat with somebody, you can talk to them. You, any of the 
features of functionality in the app, you can actually talk to someone about it. You don't have to like get a recording or trying to find how it works. And then we wanted to showcase our mobility solutions in a physical location. And that's how we landed on the Ford Hub. So it's like a three-legged stool, digital, physical, personal. And Westfield World Trade Center, um, we chose this location because they um, were opening and when they were still under construction, we met the Westfield uh, team and they offered us this location. And if you don't know, you probably know this, Rebecca, um, the World Trade Center is the transportation hub of the world. There's 300,000 people per day that come through here. So it's an opportunity for us to start a dialogue with people who are commuters as well as people who are tourists who come by here every single day and who may or may not be familiar with Ford and may see us as an automobile company but would never think of us as a mobility company. And so it's an opportunity for us to show them an experience uh, and take them through all the things that uh, we have here in this studio. So um, we opened about 60 days ago. Um, we have about, we thought we'd have about 200 people uh, per day coming through. We have 600 people per day coming through. Holy cow. How many are commuters and how many are tourists? Um, and that was in Fe January, February? January, January 31st we opened. Holy cow. Yeah. And so it's about 50-50. Wow. Yeah. So we thought that um, we thought that um, it would be more tourists, mm -hmm. right? Um, because we thought the commuters, why would they bother, right? I right. mean, they're just on a path, right? You're just like going to your destination. But they're really interested, and I think it's the people that you know kind of come by here all the time, and then they go, "Ooh, what's that?" So um, we're really excited to have both. Because when you go uh, to the map, you can see like your trains or your buses, and we're trying to cater really to give them information about what's relevant to them. And then if you're a tourist, right. we give you information like, you know, what? How do you get from here to Carnegie Hall? How do you get from here, like baseball, Yankee, Yankee Stadium? Right. How do you get to Yankee? Day. Yeah, right. Yankee Stadium. Yeah. So we were very thoughtful of the things that we put into the map and what people would be interested in for both the commuters and the tourists. And as you go through the studio, you'll see that, you know, you can download the Ford Pass app. If you want to learn about a Ford vehicle, we have a configurator. So, you know, you know, we love the cars and trucks that we build and service. And if you want to learn about it, if you want to talk to a dealer, we can connect you. So we're not... The idea to kind of showcase uh, Ford and, and what you're doing what your larger strategy is within part of this larger multimodal mobility ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, we want people to come in here. We want to educate them, we want to collaborate with them, and we want to entertain them. And we want them to see that Ford is a company that, that is, wants to deliver a great consumer experience and showcase to them the mobility solutions that we're thinking about. And frankly, we want feedback from them. You know, this is something that they're interested in, so this is something they're not interested in. We built a 25-foot mobility wall, you know, be, uh, built on the city of tomorrow that we talked about in Detroit that gives them information 
that it's over there. We'll show it to you. You get this beep to keep. You get this hub card when you come in, and then you can take each station has. You can take it with you. So this is another thing is, is we don't when people leave here, they still have their experience with them, and this is something that's really important to us. That when they can go on FordPass.com backslash hubs, and they can retrieve. You know, oh, this what, what was the location I went to again? Oh, it was Madison Square Garden. Here's how I get there. Or I did a self-driving selfie. What did it look like? Oh, I can go get it on here. Or whatever it is that they did here, they still have it with them. And so this is about building a relationship with customers and keeping that two-way dialogue going with them. Right. So when they register, what kind of information do they give you? Um, they just they could just do the beep to keep. I mean, you just beep it when you go over. We'll show you. You just put it on the station, and they don't need to give us any information. But they they give us their name, address, and zip code, basically. Okay. okay. I mean, you know, when they go on the website after right. they they give us their name and address, so right. it goes right into our regular database that right. we have for our customers. Okay. And so, then can they opt in? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we don't. We right now are not. We only haven't been open for two months. We aren't, you know, actively sending them anything right now. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're trying to give them a break. But we've had 14,000 people go on and, and get their their um, their souvenirs. Thank you. That's amazing. So, There's so much in my head. I'm trying to, like, make sure I tell you everything. Would the goal longer term to, you know, be to start... Uh, generating leads for your dealer network, you know, connecting the people who have signed in through, through programs if, like if this they, if they ask, express interest? If they express interest for a vehicle, we can connect them to dealers in their zip code. We have, we have the lead generation tool. The guys all have the lead generation tool that we use in general in any experience that you go to with Ford. So we're completely synced up with that. Um, so everything here is synced up to everything we do for normally. Right. So. Um, what about, uh, I guess, are, are you also um, talking to the, the, the people that come through here and, and find out, um, I mean, obviously you're getting zip codes, you know, you know generally the geographic area where they're coming from. Are you talking to them about what sorts of services would be of interest to them? Which which of the things they see here, or or things that they don't see here that, that they might be interested in? Yeah. So what the guides are doing basically is they're um, walking them through. The guides are all uh, culturally trained to know whether or not people actually want to talk or not talk, whether they want a tour, whether or not when people go up to something and they can't make it work people come over and help so they're they're extremely well trained um and the, the manager of uh, the hub is um very conscious of you know what people where people are in the store and what's going on so that there's nobody's left stranded because that's a big thing that we're very conscious of and so what people do is they you know the most popular thing is the last mile where they learn about mobility and the mobility challenge and you know you can learn about um, how much energy you save and time um, by using mobility and, and vehicles and bikes um, the second most popular is the VR experience in the, in the rear of the store where you can do this Mustang over Manhattan you can go and you can um, 
put the VR on and you can put the pieces of the Mustang together and then at the end you, they take a picture of you and you can go and retrieve it. So, and then the, really the third most popular is, is all the four die-cast cars. We have 5,000 die-cast cars and that's really for social sharing. People come in here and they like want to tell people they've been here. Like we, we and that's one of the things we were like, something about with cars so one of the designers like is like well, how about 5,000 diecast cars I'm like okay cool so it, it's it's fun um, to have people come and they try to find their favorite car right now the Mustang and the GT are the most popular as you would imagine and we had these girls the other day and we'll take you through it but like they tried they took all the pink cars off and put them in like a little um, uh, like row and we're like ah! you know like <laughs> So I think, you know, and the, and the, we are gaining feedback, but honestly, most people are just sort of like curious. They come in and they're kind of like, hmm, you know, so the, all the feedback has been positive. We haven't had anybody saying like anything negative. They're just more curious yeah, as like to... What, what is Ford doing in a place like this? Right. right. And, and what, I mean, and with, what with the Ford cars, now? I mean, what's right. the feedback and people are learning what Ford's doing. You know, and, and we're excited because we're telling our mobility story and you know we're generating good buzz about Ford in a positive way. Have you had Wall Street analysts come down? Have we had I, I don't think we've had any Wall Street analysts come in. I don't think so. No. Yes. Our first uh, <laughs> slot of uh, media that we did with Mark when we opened
train. And then when you get off the train, you probably take an Uber or a cab yes. or another train. Absolutely. So it's it's a multimodal journey. Right. And 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 Ford is part of that conversation. And so part of being in New York is I grew up here, so I know New York like the back of my hand. And you know, it's not. It, it's about generating a great customer experience.
Right. And exactly. they're going to walk around with a bag. Right. And, and it's bag? interesting that you know, earlier we talked about uh, training, <laughs> okay. the guides, training the guides around here, the cultural training. Yeah. Right. And it, it, it's an interesting approach, you know, trying to find that balance between you obviously want to create a new perception of what Ford is and what Ford does right. without beating people over the head. Right. You don't, you don't want to be overbearing and trying to sell it. Stuff. Right. right. So but how many languages to... do people speak here? I'm sorry. Let me I'm ask sorry. you another question. How many people are here and how many languages do they speak while you chew? <laughs> English and Spanish. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Is there an effort to make to do more? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I would I mean, think that Arabic we, and Chinese. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. I think... I think that they um, could do that, but we haven't had a big, I mean, I think some of them could, I think one or two of them has, could speak another language, mm -hmm. but we've had mostly English and Spanish. I mean, Spanish was required, right? Right. right. Um, but, you know, it, it, as, it depends. Like, we have to see, like, literally we've been over for two months. Right. At the six-month mark, then I'll start making other decisions of the things that we um, need to sort of evolve. We're also looking at, you know, we have like a quarterly calendar of how we're going to update things, what things are we going to enhance. Sure. So it's evolving because as, as we get feedback, we can say, oh, well, this might be something we need to, you know, change or we need to th think about. So right. it's not like going to be static and just sit here, you know, because right. it's, it's, a, it's a studio. It needs, and it, it's got momentum, and so we need to keep the momentum right. going. And is the only one like this? This is the only one right now. Okay. Yeah, we're uh, looking at San Francisco as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so because as Angie mentioned, sorry, we have, you know, the chariots. Right. In San Francisco, and we're about to, in Ford Pass, um, launch Motivate and Bikes in San Francisco. Okay. So with Ford Pass, just you know, so you guys know, is it's our you know one-stop shop app, and we're we launch updates every 30 days, and so um, we just launched the fuel points of interest in the U.S. and now launch in uh, Europe and China. And Mark was just in China, and he launched Ford Pass to all of China this past weekend. Yeah. So. We're really excited about, you know, that was sort of the media consumer launch. We launched to employees and dealers about four months ago in China. So we've launched in eight months, six countries in both Ford and Lincoln in this, you know, connected ecosystem of Ford Pass. And so we're going to keep launching. we got Motivate, the bikes coming in. So San Francisco is a really important city right. for us. Right. So we're considering um, a hub there. we just got to find the right location. Yeah. So. And, you know, I, I got a chance to try out Ford Pass when it launched last mm -hmm. year. And I, I, I even used it to call up and talk to a guide and just ask some questions about, you know, what, what sort of response they're getting. And, and it's, it's a, I think it's, a, it's an interesting platform. I'm curious, um, and part of it is um, also tying in third-party services like parking. Right, right. And, right. Uh, what kind of response are you seeing from providers of third-party services that you can tie into that? Is there a lot of interest? We're getting, we are, we have more people wanting to come into the app than we can launch every 30 days. So we have more demand than we can um, contain. Okay. I guess uh, more ideas too than we can contain. So we just launched, um, as I said, we just launched Fuel. So if you drive, about 80% of the people are owners. So right now we're going to cater to our owners. Um, and so I think it's important, you know, parking is, is going well. Um, fuel, um, as I said, just launched. So we'll, you go in, if, if your car is 
is low on fuel, well, it'll tell you that you know you're low on fuel, and here's the closest gas stations. And the gas is working really well. That's people are really using that.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.